Genesis is the book of beginnings, then how important is the beginning of the book? Genesis chapters 1 and 2 lay a foundation that is vital of our, for our understanding of life. <clears throat> what is God like? Where did we come from? What are we here for? The first two chapters of the Bible <clears throat> cover the first week of creation. The first two chapters of the Bible span just seven, lots of 24-hour days. And in these chapters, we have profound answers to these questions and more. <clears throat> Herbert Spencer was a non-Christian scientist. He was born in 1820, died in 1903. He was an early advocate of the theory of evolution. He advocated the preeminence of science over a religion. He was hailed as someone who was worthy of many prizes in science. His greatest achievement was that he discovered the categories of things that are knowable. That is to say, he determined that everything exists in one of five categories. And this was hailed as a massive cataloging of realities. Spencer said, not quite, everything fits into one of these categories. Time, force, action, space, matter. And for this, he was honoured by the scientific community. And yet his great discovery was already revealed in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, that's time. God, that's force, created. That's action. The heavens, that's space. And the earth, that's matter. In other words, everything that Herbert Spencer discovered in 1903 or even before that was already revealed in the first verse of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2 tells us that the earth was without form and void. And then from verse 3 onwards, we are told what God then did in the creative process. And we can summarize it by saying that God did two things. He formed it and he filled it. The earth was without form. It was formless. And so God gave it form. And the earth was void. It was empty. And so God filled it. He formed it and he filled it. On days one, two and three, God formed, gave form to the heavens and the earth. On days four, five and six, he filled the heavens and the earth with inhabitants. So what we find is that the six days of creation are perfectly divided. There's a remarkable correspondence between the first three days and the last three days, I've set them out for you in your outline on, in two columns. Day one has a correspondence to day four. Day two corresponds to day five. Day three to day six. 
The first three days on the left are the days when the heavens and the earth were given form by God. God formed the heavens and the earth and he gave them specific form. Then verse, uh, days four, five and six on the right hand side are the days when the heavens and the earth were f- that God had formed were now filled. Now let's just follow that pattern through. <clears throat> on day one, the light was created. And on the corresponding day four, God filled the heavens and the earth. I'm sorry, the heavens, beg your pardon, with the, the moon and the sun to, to rule the light. On day two, God formed the great expanse called the sky, separating the waters above from the waters below. And on the parallel fifth day, God filled the sky and the waters with birds and fish. On day three, God separated the water from the dry land and vegetation and on the corresponding day six he filled the land with animal life and created man to rule over it all providing him with food so verse two the earth was without form and void so god gave it form god formed three spheres of activity he formed the sky he formed the land He formed the waters on the first three days. Then he filled those three spheres with appropriate forms of life. Day four, five and six. And then when we come into chapter two, verse two tells us that on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he'd made. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had made. And observing this pattern, we should find it no surprise that nearly every human civilization from that time until today has ordered its life around a seven day week. Even though some of those cultures have never had access to Genesis and they don't talk with other cultures that do the same thing. And this is a testimony written on the human conscience to the truthfulness of the the creation account so let's have a closer look at the six days of creation day one in verses one to three we read what day god did on day one he created the heavens and the earth it was without form and void so then god began giving it form And then filling it, on the first day he commanded the light to shine out of darkness and established a night and day cycle, a day and night cycle. But how could there be light when the heavenly light bearers, the sun and the moon and the stars, weren't yet created? They're not mentioned as being created until verse 4. Well, since we're not told that light came from any of the illuminaries that God had created, the light evidently came from God himself. John chapter 1 verse 5 tells us that God is light. Psalm 104 verse 2 and Habakkuk chapter 3 verses 3 and 4 tells us that God wears light like a garment. Revelation 22 verse 5 tells us that the eternal city, with joy endless, 
is full of light without the help of the sun or, or the moon. In other words, the Bible ends with light but no sun. And so why shouldn't it begin in the same way? Why couldn't there be light at the beginning before the sun, moon and the stars were made? God is light. Revelation 22 verse 5 says, There shall be no night there. They need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light. And he shall reign forever and ever, just like he's always reigned forever and ever. In verses 6 to 8, we read what God did on day 2. God made a firmament which we know as the sky. That is the atmospheric expanse between the water that is below and the water which is above. It seems that when God began to form the earth, it seems it was covered with water originally or some water vapor canopy. A, a vaporous blanket seemed to surround the earth to begin with. But then God separated the land mass from water which he kept below and their water which was then above which is mentioned to us. In the days of Noah, when tremendous amounts of water, unlike anything that we know today, tremendous amounts of water came crashing down. The waters of the great deep, it says, were broken up from underneath. And similar volumes of water came down from above. In verses 9 through 13, we read what God did on day 3. It says that God gathered the waters together in one place. There is one sea bed. Throughout the whole earth, one seabed. He brought the waters together in one place. He made the dry land also appear and thus making the earth and the seas. And then for the first time, God said that what he had done was good in verse 10. And God's creation today is still good, even though it travails because of sin, Romans 8 tells us. Even though it's been ravaged by the ex. The ex and exploited by sinful people. God also caused plant life to appear. The grasses, the seed producing herbs, the fruit bearing trees. And God decreed that each would reproduce after its kind. In verses 14 to 19 we read what God did on day 4. He created the heavenly bodies. He assigned them their work to divide the day and the night, to provide signs, to mark off days and years and seasons. And before the invention of the clock or the compass, people learned to live by the cycles of nature. Navigators depended upon the stars to direct them consistently and precisely. Israel needed the help of those heavenly bodies to help them to remember their annual practices as far as feasts and holy days. Sometimes God even used signs in the heavens to speak to his people. In verses 20 to 23, we read what God did on day five. 
God had created the sky and the waters. He filled them abundantly with living creatures. He made birds to fly in the sky, aquatic creatures to swim in the seas. Psalm 104 takes up this theme as being something for which God is worthy of praise. O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So is this great and wide sea, wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. And the new element that God added on this day, not only did he call it good, but it also says that he blessed the creatures that he made. And this is the first time the word blessed is used in the Bible. And this first blessing enabled the animals to reproduce abundantly and to enjoy all that God had made for them. In a similar way, God then also went on to bless Adam and Eve, the man and his wife. Chapter 2, verse 3, he went on to bless the Sabbath day. Chapter 9 tells us he blessed Noah and his family And then as we go forward in the book of Revelation, we read that God blessed Abraham, made a covenant with him, which meant that everyone who by faith understood what it was about, they also would be blessed with faithful Abraham. This blessing has reached down to God's people today. In verses 24 to 26a, we read what God did on day six. God had formed the sky and filled it with flying creatures. He had formed the sea and filled the waters with various aquatic creatures. But now creation reaches its climax on the sixth day when God now filled the land with animal life and created the first man and his wife who would have dominion over all of the earth and all of its creatures. Like the... Like the first man, animals were also made out of the dust of the ground, which explains why the body both of animals and people go back to the earth after they die. However, humans and animals are different. No matter how intelligent those animals are, they seem to be, or can train to be, animals are not endowed with the image of God as human beings are. Genesis 1.26 says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Having formed man out of the dust of the earth, God now filled man with the life of God. The verb formed suggests a potter making a work of art in his skillful hands. And indeed, the human body is a work of art, amazingly complex. Something that only the wisdom of God could design and only the power of God could create. And the physical matter for Adam's body came from the ground. His name means Adam, which means of the earth or out of the ground. But the life, the life that Adam possessed, came from God. And Psalm 8 tells us that consideration, this consideration of God's creative work 
should lead us, as Pastor Brendan you know, helped us as we began the service, should lead us to bow down before the Lord in awe and wonder. Psalm 8 verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honour. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea. Whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. The 17th century mathematician and philosopher, Sir Isaac Newton, had a mechanical replica of our solar system made in miniature, miniature scale. At its centre was a large golden ball representing the sun and revolving around it were smaller spheres attached to ends of rods of varying length. They represented Mercury and Venus and Earth and Mars and the other planets. They're all geared together by cogs and belts to make them to move around the sun in perfect harmony. One day as Newton was studying his model, an unbelieving non-Christian friend stopped by for a visit. Marvelling at this device and watching it, the man exclaimed, My Newton, what an exquisite thing. Who made it for you? Without looking up, Newton said, Nobody. Nobody? That's right, I said, Nobody. All these balls and cogs and belts and gears just happened to come together. And wonder of wonders, by chance, they began revolving in their orbits with perfect timing. His friend got the point. The existence of Newton's machine proposes a maker, even more so the earth, even more so the universe, which is perfectly ordered. The chances of such an ordered cosmic machine happening by chance are overwhelming. For example, if I take 10 coins and number them 1 to 10 and put them in my pocket, the chances of me pulling out the coin number 1 will be 1 in 10. But if I place that coin back in my pocket, mix all the coins up again, the chances of me pulling out coin number two would be one in a hundred. The chances of repeating the same procedure coming up with coin number three would be one in a thousand. To do so with all of them, one through ten in order would be one in ten billion. Johannes Kepler was the founder of modern astronomy. He was the discoverer of the three planetary laws of motion. He was the originator of the term satellite. Noting the order and the design in our universe, Kepler said this. He said, the undevout astronomer is mad. It's the fool, the Bible tells us, that says in his heart that there is no God. Let me just take a couple of minutes to share with you just a brief word about evolution. 
We need to understand that the hypothesis of evolution is simply that it is a hypothesis. It is not a scientific fact. Today, because time has elapsed between the beginning of time and today, there is no hypothesis of origins which can be properly tested, much less proven. And yet so many people today are enamoured with the so-called fact of evolution, and yet it is just a hypothesis. Not only can the evolutionary hypothesis not be scientifically tested or proven, there is no way it can at all be put together with the biblical account of creation as if to force evolution into the biblical record. Let me give you three reasons why. Biblical account and evolution cannot be harmonized. Three reasons why. Number one, we are given no reason to believe that the six days of creation were anything but six literal days. We all know that Peter tells us under inspiration that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. We understand that time is nothing to God in that sense. But Genesis chapter 1 says over and over and over again that each day was followed by a morning and an evening. That doesn't describe long periods of time. That doesn't describe millennia. It's the normal sequence where we talk about normal 24-hour days. Second, notice that the Bible makes it very, very clear that the plants, the sea creatures, the birds, the mammals, the reptiles were all created after their kind. So what we're being told is this, that God did not create an amoeba that evolved into a fish. He did not create a monkey that evolved into modern man. Every creature was created as a distinct kind. And in the fossil record, we don't find one form evolving into another. There's no fossil record of transitional forms. The kinds are distinct. We're told in the Bible, the fossil record confirms it. Third, notice that man was created in the image of God. Therefore, anyone who says that we came from apes must also be prepared to say that God, in whose image we were made, must be an ape or at least was ape-like when we were created. Maybe God was evolving too. You see, evolution at best is silliness. At worst, it's blasphemous. From the very beginning, the first man, Adam, was made with God-like characteristics, speech and reason and creativity, moral consciousness. Man was made from the beginning in the image of God. Now, two weeks ago, we introduced the book of Genesis by highlighting the fact is that Genesis is a book about God. It's a book in which God reveals himself to us. God is. He wants us to know that he is. He wants us to know what he's like. He wants us to know him. He can be known. Therefore, he reveals himself to us in nature and in the Bible especially. And last week we began looking at verses 1 and 2. Pastor Brendan's message was entitled, The First Revelation. 
The first way that God begins to reveal himself, he is eternal, he is self-existent. The six days of creation provide us with more information, more detail, more revelation of what God is like. So let's consider some further revelation of God that we find here in the six days of creation. When we contemplate the heavens and the earth which God created, we're learning things about God. As Psalm 19 says, day unto day uttereth speech, night unto night is teaching knowledge. Every day, every night is telling us things about God. You ride the Hubble telescope across the galaxies, you learn things about God. You travel in a microscope into the complexity of the human cell, you learn more about God. You go deeper into atoms and deeper still into quarks and I think this, you go deeper still, there's something else beyond as well. Everything we, everything we see, everything we touch, everything we taste, everything we smell. This is God, God, God did all that. All of that teaches us something about God. Remember William Blake's poem. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? You look at a tiger and you think, what must God be like to make a creature like that? What kind of God must he be to frame, to form, to fill the heavens and the earth as he has? What does God reveal himself? Of? What does God reveal about himself in the first week? Here's a couple of things that God reveals himself about himself in these verses. First of all, God reveals to us that he speaks. God speaks. That statement, and God said, <clears throat> occurs 10 times in Genesis 1. It introduced the first set of God's commandments, none of which have ever been broken. And they stand in contrast with God's second set of Ten Commandments, none of which have ever been kept, except, of course, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And God said, light be, and light was. In other words, God's words are not only legislative, they're also executive. When God speaks, it is done. That Jesus was indeed God in the flesh is evident in his words because his words, his speech has the same quality about it. When he was sleeping in a boat, for instance, he was awakened by his frightened disciples. A storm had sprung up. They feared that they would drown. And Jesus spoke. He addressed the winds and the waves. Peace, he said, be still. And immediately there was a great calm. His words are not only legislative, they're executive. He stood before the tomb of Lazarus, a man who had been dead four days. His body was decomposing. He spoke into that situation. Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. John eleven 
43 and 44. His words are executive. It was a leper that came to him, riddled through and through with a foul and fatal disease. Lord, he said, if thou wilt, thou can make me, make me clean. Jesus looked upon him. Jesus spoke to this man. Jesus said, be thou clean. And it was the same voice that spoke in the beginning. That created everything out of nothing. His only tools was his word. He does it with such ease. God speaks. And today, if you need it, God will pronounce you clean. God will declare you righteous. God will, 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 will address you. He will speak to you. He will pronounce you righteous. If you will turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you. God speaks. Secondly, God works. God works. Six days God is working. Genesis chapter 2 verse 2 tells us that on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made and rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. God works. He works progressively. We can see that in creation. Day at a time, day at a time, day after day. The whole week of creation, God works progressively. Didn't do it all on day one. No, he worked progressively. We see that God works progressively in salvation as well. God will justify us in, a, in an instant. But then progressively he will sanctify us over time. Day after day after day. Doesn't do it all at once. He'll justify us in a moment but then he will sanctify us progressively. God will work in our hearts. Work in our lives. To help us to be not so much like Adam and to be more like Jesus. God works progressively to sanctify us. God will work to glorify us ultimately. God works our salvation in us, through us, progressively. Justified, sanctified, ultimately glorified. Just to sort of, sort of circle round back on that, God works progressively in our sanctification. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will continue to perform that good work, continue to work until the day when we go home to be with Jesus or he comes for us. God works. We can be thankful for it. His work of creation was finished after six days. <clears throat> But his work of sustaining the earth continues. Everything's upheld by the, wor the word of his power. And his work in saving souls and sanctifying the saved and ultimately glorifying his people continues. Uh, just a very, very brief word of personal testimony. Today... <clears throat> Thankfully, I'm not what I used to be. Um, two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. God has continued his work. Um, 
I'm not what I shall be. And I'm looking forward to that perfection ultimately one day. God works progressively. Thirdly, God separates. God separates. From the very first day of creation, we can see that God separates. He established a principle of separation. Verse, verse 4, he separates the light from the darkness. Verse 14 tells us he separated the night from the day. He separated the waters which are beneath from the waters which are above. Verses 6 to 8. He separated the water from the land. Verses 9 and 10. Through Moses, he commanded his people Israel to be separate from the nations which were round about them. And when they refused to do that, when they refused to do that, things did not go well for them. And that's, that's, just, that's not just written for their sake. It's not just history written for their sake. This is for our sake. We have to understand this. God separates. Brethren, we need to be careful. As we move around about the pagan nations around about us, we need to be very, very careful of our walk. Not to be conformed to the world. Keep ourselves unspotted from the world. God separates. Fourthly, God is perfection. God is perfection. In the Bible, the number, the number seven represents completion. It speaks about perfection. And the seven days of the first week certainly bears testimony to the fact that you know, God is perfect. Everything that he did, he did was good, very good, perfect. No question about that. That's... That's, that, that's, you, you read that, it's clear. But there is more. The late Hebrew University professor, Umberto Casuto, Casuto, he pointed out that the structure of the days of creation is based upon a system of numerical harmony using the number seven. This is what he wrote, and I quote, The work of the Creator which is marked by absolute perfection and flawless systematic orderliness is distributed over seven days, six days of labor and the seventh day set aside for the enjoyment of the completed task. But then he goes on to make these observations. The word God, Elohim, the word heavens, Sa'ayim, and the word earth, Eretz, which are the three nouns of the opening verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These three nouns are repeated in this creation account in multiples of seven. God occurs 35 times, that's five times seven. Heavens 21 times, that's three times seven. The earth 21 times also. In addition to this, in the Hebrew original, the first verse has seven words. The second verse has 14 words, two lots of seven. The seventh paragraph which talks about the seventh day, has three sentences, each sentence has seven words, and contains in the middle of the phrase, the seventh day. Cassito concludes, and I quote, this numerical symmetry is as it were the golden thread that binds together all the parts of the sections and serves as a convincing proof of its Unity. It does that. It's a remarkable piece of literature. 
which speaks about perfection in every possible way, not just in observing what God did, but in the way that it talks about what God did. Yes, creation is very good. It is perfect because God the Creator is perfect. Number five, God is supreme. God is supreme. Let's remember, who was the original audience that Moses was writing to? Let's remember this. It was the Israelites of Moses' day. They were his original audience. They were the ones who read the book of Genesis first. When we come then to the book of Exodus, we see Israel in bondage to Egypt. And in setting of Israel free, God sent 10 plagues. And what's not immediately obvious as we read through about the 10 plagues, but what we discover is that those 10 plagues were actually judgments upon the gods of the Egyptians. They worship frogs, they worship the moon, they worship cattle, they worship the river, they worship Pharaoh. And every plague, every judgment that God poured out upon Egypt at that time was actually a judgment upon the gods that they worship. And this, this was needful for Israel because <clears throat> lest they be tempted to go back to Egypt, there was no point going back there because their gods are nothing. Our God is the one true God. Don't go back to Egypt. And as they thought about embracing the gods of the Canaanites, well, that wouldn't be wise to do either because those gods are nothing either. Our God is the one true God. And this is a message that God was trying to get through to his people as he rained down the plagues in the Exodus. And in a similar way, yet not so obvious, but in a similar way, the six days of creation are a polemic against the pagan mythologies of the surrounding nations. Each day of creation attacks one of the pagan gods in the Parthenon of deities in Moses' day, and in the created, the creation work, the week, each day, God is saying, I am God, there is none else. On day one, the gods of the light and darkness, they are dismissed because God is the one who made the light and the darkness. On day two, the gods of the sky and the sea, they're also nothing because our God is the one who made the sky and the sea. On day three, the gods of the vegetation, they are also dismissed because God is the one who made all those things. Similarly, day four, sun, moon and stars. People worship the heavenly bodies. God almost treats them as nothing. He made the stars also. He doesn't even name the sun. He doesn't even name the moon. He doesn't even give them that credit. He said it's the greater light, the lesser light. He doesn't mention any names because you know what happens. The pagans had names for the sun and names for the moon and names for the stars. And in almost a dismissive way, says God made those. So who's the, who's the greater one? Days five and six dispense with the ideas of divinity within animal kingdom. God made them. And finally, God made it very, very clear that humanity is not divine while also teaching that all, from the greatest to the least, are made in the image and likeness of God. 
Thus, biblical reality replaces myth. God is supreme. God is supreme. And if you doubt that, go back to Genesis 1 and read it over and over again. If God isn't... If, 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 if you think there's any other God, pleasure, money, comfort, status, power, if, if we think that there's any other God that is to be preferred above God, go back and read Genesis 1. God is supreme. <clears throat> Number six, God sees. God sees. It is repeated throughout Genesis 1 ten times, and God saw. God wants us to know that he sees. Proverbs 15 verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And that's, a, that's an unnerving thing. If you've done evil, that's an unnerving thing. If you're a sinner, it's an unnerving thing if you're like Adam and Eve have disobeyed the Lord. And yet, Genesis chapter 1 tells us that even though God sees everything, God also wants us to know that, but he also wants us to know his disposition towards us. Okay, He sees everything. He knows everything. He sees the good. He sees when it's very good. He sees the bad. He knows when it's very, very bad. He sees all of that. But what he, wants, what he also wants us to see is the depth of care that God has for his creatures, particularly for man. You read the creation account. And what it does, it, it, it's telling us about the world that God created for man. God's care for man is very, very evident. You know, everything that God made, it's for man's benefit. Everything that God made was for man to rule over. It's, it's all done for man. This is, this is the way that God views us. And as it gets to the creation of man himself, the whole account slows down. And we go into great more details. He made the stars, that's, that's a thing. But it really, really slows down when it comes to the pinnacle of God's creation. It's man. And more and more information is revealed about the, revealed about the creation of man than anything else. Such is the nature of God's care for us. And God wants us to know that. Yes, he sees everything. He knows when we've done the wrong thing, but that doesn't diminish the kind of God that he is. He still cares for us. You go a bit further in the book of Genesis, we come to chapter 16, where we read quite an unusual story about a young lady from Egypt. She's a slave lady from Egypt. We don't know much about her except that she's far away from her homeland. She becomes a slave of a woman named Sarah. The girl's name is Hagar. And it's a bit of a, it's an embarrassing story in one sense, but it's also heartbreaking. Sarah and her husband Abraham, they have no children. Sarah believes that she is too old to have children, so she hands over Hagar to her husband Abraham to bear his child. Abraham sleeps with Hagar, but he doesn't care about her. Sarah now 
finds Hagar's presence antagonizing. Neither seem to want her around. So Hagar is forced to run away. She finds herself alone. She finds herself pregnant, alone and pregnant in the desert. But then there's a surprise appearance by a messenger from God. The angel of the Lord comes to this slave woman, used, abused, rejected, abandoned. This messenger from God, this representative from God, hears her cries and assures her that she is not alone afterwards. And given her background, we know that Hagar knew a a few gods. She would have known many, many gods being an Egyptian. But she comes up with a new name for this one because she'd never met anyone like this before. No one in her category of thinking was like this messenger of God who revealed God to her in God's care in this way. Cared enough for her to seek her out and to speak with her. And this misfit calls him the God who sees me. Here's the God who sees me. Genesis 1 tells us God said everything he'd done, it was all great, it's good. But tell you what else God sees. He sees things that are not so good. He sees people that are broken by their own sinfulness or someone else's sinfulness. God sees you and cares. God's disposition, his care towards us, it's evident in the way that he created. He wants us to know this. And in a desperate situation, an extreme situation, we're just reminded of something he told us in Genesis chapter 1. God sees and God cares. You know, this world is a very different place to the one that God originally created. The paradise of God. This creation is marred. The environment is arid. It is hostile. Man made in the image of God can behave in very ungodlike ways. The pinnacle of God's creation is fallen, corrupt, perverted, depraved, affected by sin. Everything affected by sin except God. Everything changed except God. God is still the same. His disposition towards mankind is still the same. His love of people is still the same. And it's the same love of God that sent not just messengers, the angel of the Lord, to comfort, but sent his only begotten son. Not just to speak words of comfort, but to lay down his life for the forgiveness of sin. To, to, to do a work of, of a redeeming work for a fallen creation, a fallen humanity, everything that Adam lost, all the bad that happened because of Adam's sin, God in his grace and mercy and the good work of Christ for us, Jesus is redeeming everything that Adam lost. He's restoring everything that Adam lost. 
God sees us alone. He sees us lost. He sees us despised, rejected. He sees us corrupt because of sin. And he loves us. And he wants to save us. This is God revealed to us in the opening verses and chapters of the Bible. Explained to us, revealed to us in graphic detail. When we get to, to the New Testament, God becomes a man, lives amongst us, sinless life, dies a substitutionary death, an agonising death. You know, you know how much God loves us? He didn't just create a nice world because he's loving towards us. He gave his only begotten son to die for sinful creatures like us. That's how, that's how loving he is. The Bible is a book of revelation about God. God wants us to know him. And what he reveals about himself in the opening chapters of Genesis is highly significant. And may the Lord continue to open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you today for your word. Um, as we look around about us, <coughs> uh, Lord, what we see uh, confirms what we read in the scriptures. There is beauty, there is wonder in your creation. It declares your power and Godhead. Every day it's sending out a message about what an amazing creator that you are. Lord, even, even the fallen creation, there's still plenty there that would cause us to bow down in awe and wonder at the wonder of your creative work. Father, we also want to thank you for what we read in the scriptures concerning the kind of God that you are. In nature, we see your power and Godhead in the scriptures. We see your love, your mercy. And we see very clearly what it is that you've done to save sinful people like us. Thank you for giving us the Lord Jesus. Thank you for giving us your son. And uh, Lord, I do pray that each one of us would respond properly to what you've revealed to us about yourself. Lord, that when we see the creation, that we would lift up our voices in praise to you. Lord, when we, when we see the gospel, we see what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, I pray that our hearts would bow down before you. We lift up our voices in praise to you. Thanking you for redeeming us by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Lord, we praise you for the revelation of the gospel the revelation of your grace in Christ. And Lord, we rejoice in these things. Lord, help us to be good stewards of the message of the gospel. Help us not, not, not just to keep the good news to ourselves, but uh, Lord, that uh, what we've seen and heard might be so significant in our lives that we can't but share it with others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.